a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Nightmare on F Street reads the November 20th, 1988 headline in the Sacramento Bee. Dorothea Puente appeared to the world an upstanding citizen and do-gooder. She was a docile older woman with a soft face and Coke bottle glasses. Independently wealthy, she'd tell people, and keen to help people in need. She ran a well-regarded boarding house in Sacramento, California for years. Her care was especially desired because she took in the neediest people, the homeless, the drug addicted, and the mentally ill. She worked hard to build a reputation for herself among the political ranks, donating money to Republican and Democratic candidates and rubbing elbows with them at fundraisers. But even a cursory look into her past would have revealed a long history of lies, theft, and maybe even murder. And if they did a little more digging, they would have discovered what was hiding in the boarding house she kept on F Street. A secret which would finally reveal Dorothea Puente for who she really was. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Alvaro Bert Montoya is what we'd call a shadow person. This is not a name we made up, but it's something commonly known, and I will define it for you. A shadow person is someone who is left behind by society, a person who doesn't really have many people looking out for them, a person who wouldn't draw much attention if they just disappeared. So we want to introduce you to Bert. Bert is this broad-shouldered guy. He's got wild graying hair um, and a salt-and-pepper beard, and he has schizophrenia, and that makes it really hard for him to take care of himself. He has voices in his head, and they are loud, and they tell him to kill himself, and he tends to communicate with others in grunts or, you know, nonverbal responses. But despite his illness, he's a gentle, kind-hearted soul and a very special case for a certain Sacramento social worker named Judy Moyes. Judy first meets Bert and he's in a detox treatment center that can't really tend to his particular needs. It's just not a great fit because... Bert's not an alcoholic, but uh, sometime in his past, a social worker dropped him off there because, to their credit, there's just not a lot of options for a person like Bert. And Judy, the social worker, she believes that she can find a better home for Bert, somewhere that is more suited to his needs. You know, he doesn't need a detox center. He needs Mm -hmm. a boarding house, somewhere where he can live with an experienced caretaker. And so Judy asks around, um, and she asks Bert where he wants to live. And he agrees to move into a boarding house in downtown Sacramento. And she's psyched because she finds this perfect place for him. It's this boarding house at 1426 F Street. And it's got a totally rad reputation among the social workers. And the woman that runs it is willing to take in really hard, really tricky cases. People that have severe mental illness and substance abuse issues. And like Carrie said, shadow people. People that no one can take care of. People like Bert. So Bert moves into this place February, it's 1988, and his new home looks great. He walks in and they meet his new caretaker, this woman Dorothea Puente, and she immediately starts speaking Spanish to Bert, and that puts Judy at ease. 
Yeah, she's put at ease because she's meeting this woman, Dorothea, who's clearly competent, but also just really sweet. The home looks clean. The pill bottles look organized. Not only that, but Dorothea's got a box of kittens, and she's picking up these kittens, and she's feeding them from a bottle. Who doesn't love that? And she's also, by the way, while we're talking about kittens, she's got a kitten calendar in the kitchen. And, you know, when you think feel good, I think you think it's a kitten theme. And here we are. Judy feels great. So she leaves Bert there. She has found him his forever home. And once Bert is settled in, she checks on him to make sure that she was right and that this is going to be a good fit and that things are going okay. And Bert does seem really happy. And that makes her happy. So a few months pass and Judy decides to go and check on her friend Bert and see how he's doing. And in October of 1988, she calls up Dorothea. And when she asks Dorothea to speak to Bert, Dorothea responds that, you know, Bert, he went on vacation. You know, he went to uh, Mexico for a family fiesta. And Judy hears this and something just doesn't feel right. That just doesn't sound like Bert. Bert leaving to Mexico with family for a fiesta? Just no. 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 Judy keeps asking Dorothea for more details. And at first, she says he was just leaving for this party. But then the story, it's getting bigger. He came back. He packed a bag. He's left permanently. And that really doesn't make any sense. But there's no one for Judy to call. Bert doesn't have any close relatives. She knows of no forwarding number, no address, no one he would be at a fiesta with. So she can't disprove what Dorothea is telling her, but in her gut, this sounds really off. So she continues to call again and again and again, and she starts asking others in the home where Bert might have gone, and no one can really give her a straight answer. And on November 7th, 1988, Judy finally decides, enough is enough, I gotta find out where Bert is, so she files a missing persons report with the police department. And she says his last known location was this boarding house run by Dorothea. So an officer goes right away to the boarding house that day. To look for him. He's, he's not there, though. He's not there. He interviews Dorothea and one of her tenants, and they tell the same story, that Bert left with a relative, that they saw him go of his own free will, and guess what? You go to that kitchen, you check out that kitten calendar I told you about, and in capital letters on the day he supposedly left, it does say, Bert left. And, you know, if it's in the kitten calendar, Carrie, I think it's it's gospel at that point, right? Meow. <laughs> I don't know. That's an amen and a cat? I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was feeling. That's what doing. I felt, yeah. But the officer, after going through this, I guess he believes a cat calendar. So he thinks nothing is amiss. He believes Dorothea. I mean, what's not to believe? She's a sweet, elderly-looking woman. And so he begins to leave. And just when he's At the door, about to exit the boarding house, this tenant comes to him and slips him an envelope. That's a little strange. So he walks outside and he goes and he opens the envelope and nothing is in it. But then he flips it over and scrawled on the top is this message, she's making me lie. So this officer takes this envelope, which must have made his heart just race, and he brings it back to the station and passes the case to John Cabrera. And he looks just like I wanted him to look. He looks like uh, 80s Tom Selleck, straight out of Magnum P.I. He's got the helmet hair. He's got, like, the boomerang mustache. Who doesn't love a Tom Selleck mustache? So the first thing he does is he looks up this Dorothea Puente. And to his surprise, she's got a rap sheet. And it's a pretty hefty one at that. And currently, she's actually on parole. And technically, she's not even allowed to be running a boarding home. So the first thing Detective Cabrera does is he calls up her parole officer, this guy Jim Wilson, and he asks him to come with him and his partner to the boarding house to go and talk to Dorothea. So it's a cold November afternoon. They all head down to F Street to have a little chit-chat. They knock on the door. Dorothea opens it in a polka dot blue dress and invites them in. And then she's kind of clocks that one of them, she knows this guy, it's her parole officer, and she says right away, I'm in violation of my parole. 
And I think that instant <laughs> admission of guilt just sort of throws him, right? Listen, they do say that honesty is the best policy. <laughs> I just can't imagine opening the door. That's me. I got it. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> well, you can't really give her brownie points for honesty because she really couldn't have hit it. You go inside and it's pretty <laughs> obvious she's running an illegal boarding house. But the officers are not there to check on that. They're looking for Bert. So Detective Cabrera and his partner start to search the house looking for Bert or any clues to his whereabouts. And it's decorated with paper turkeys for Thanksgiving. I'm imagining like hand cut out turkey vibes. And Dorothea offers them coffee and candy and what I assume it's butterscotch in a candy dish. And they politely decline. Um, But again, there's no sign of Bert anywhere. So John Cabrera starts to interview all of the tenants because he knows at this point that Dorothea isn't the most trustworthy witness. But still, no one seems to know what happened to Bert. In addition, he's looking around the house, kind of gaining his bearings, and he finds something really odd. Scattered around the house, there are old blue pill capsules just everywhere. His blink is going off, and he wants to dig deeper because he spies in the back that there's some earth that's sort of, I don't know, stirred up, kind of unsettled in the yard. And it brings to mind uh, some weird phone calls, some weird tips, some weird rumors that he's heard uh, from her neighbors. Some of these neighbors have reported strange smells coming out of the yard, and coupled with a uh, a missing tenant, they think, hey, Dorothea, mind if we go search that yard? And she says, sure, yeah, go right ahead. Uh, But, you know, be careful. Some of the plants are new. I just put them in. She stands in the door watching as they go get some shovels from the patrol car. And always helpful. That's our Dorothea. She says, hey, I've also got an extra shovel in the shed if you want to grab it. And they do. And the three of them start digging. So they're digging, and at first they find what you find in a garden, just dirt. But eventually they start to find some garbage, some trash, and they start to pull at what looks like cloth or leather out of the ground. And Detective Cabrera is shoveling the dirt out, and suddenly his shovel hits something really hard, about like three feet deep. It makes a huge thud, and he's looking at it, and it kind of looks like a tree root. So at that point, he's just trying to dig around it, loosen it up. Yeah, just using his hands, reaching in, uh, kind of just trying to, like, get his hands around it and jerk it out. And it comes loose. But it is not a tree root. It is a bone. Oh. It's a human femur bone. And he calls Dorothea over. Hey, look what I just found in your yard. And she gasps, puts her hands up to her face like a cartoon, and she's just shaking her head saying, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's not an admission of guilt, to be clear, but I gotta be honest with you. If someone found a bone in your backyard, would your response be, I don't know what to tell you? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm rethinking everything. I would would probably say, oh my God. I'd probably wretch. I probably would be, and what's Really crazy is, you know how he mentioned those bits of cloth or leather-like things that were being pulled apart? Mm-hmm. They think it was skin. Oh. Uh, okay, now I'm going to retch. Yeah, Ready totally. to retch. <laughs> Ready to retch. You got me there. So immediately Detective Cabrera stops the dig. He knows that a full forensic excavation needs to happen, um, and that's going to have to wait until tomorrow. And they can't risk tampering with any evidence themselves, which, by the way... Good job. I got to applaud. Good job. Stop if it's beyond your capabilities, police officers. Wait till some professionals get in. They want to bring Dorothy in for questioning because she's running that property. So they bring her to the station to answer a few questions. And as far as we know, she's not detained and she's not handcuffed. She goes of her own accord to the Hall of Justice. And Quinn, do you think she's Mm. nervous? Oh, no. I mean, I can't imagine why. She's a kindly old woman who I'm sure had nothing to do with this. Based on looks alone, correct. It's 12.25 p.m. and Magnum P.I., a.k.a. 80s Tom Selleck, a.k.a. Detective Cabrera, 
walks into the interrogation room in his red t-shirt and he sets his mug of coffee on the table. Maybe it says number one detective on it. Dorothea's wearing that polka dot getup and she's sitting across from him resting her head on one hand. In the other hand, she's holding a paper cup. Presumably filled with coffee. I'm gonna assume she's a coffee drinker, but she looks almost relaxed. In the footage of this interrogation from the Center for Sacramento History, she is questioned for about 45 minutes about her culpability. Dorothea, I know if we dig, we're going to find more. I know that. I know that. Well, I didn't put them there. I couldn't drag a body any place. I believe that. But I believe there's somebody else involved here. I think you know about Mr. Montoya, because Mr. Montoya is not in Costa Rica. Mr. Montoya He's is not, not in Costa Utah. Rica. He, where is he? He's in that backyard, I believe, Dorothea. He is in that backyard, or he's been disposed of some other manner. Not by me. So Dorothea stays pretty calm, and she adamantly keeps denying any knowledge of how a body ended up in her yard. But our Tom Selleck hero, Detective Cabrera, he knows something is up. He knows her rap sheet, and to him, the answer to his questions is staring him right in the face. He keeps pushing for the truth in the interrogation footage preserved by the Center for Sacramento History. I'm asking you, because if it has to be said, I want it said right now, let's clear it up. Let's not get into something that maybe isn't there. I want to know. I want no, you not, to be truthful sir, with I me. didn't even know that body was there. Okay. If I had it, I would have said, no, don't search the yard, you know. But I had nothing to hide. I don't want to go back to prison. Well, I realize that. I'm an old lady. I realize that, too. I'm trying to get off parole. I'm trying to get my life together. She comes off, man, as just so calm, right? Just so collected. Nothing is throwing her. She seems chill. But I I also have to say, Cabrera, he's doing a bang-up job of staying really calm himself, like really patient, not losing his cool, But he knows that behind the facade of her age and this innocent old woman, her history tells a really different story. We've teased her rap sheet for a while, but let's really get into it. So Dorothea's caretaking career begins in 1968 when she founded an unlicensed healthcare business called The Samaritans. Why is there such a thing as an unlicensed healthcare business? I don't know, but here we are. And so what she would do is she would take alcoholics under her wing and support them as they would work to overcome their addictions and they would be reassimilated into society. At least that's what she led people to believe she did. Yeah, I mean, Dorothea, she cleans up real nice. She is really good at wooing social workers and inspectors. So whenever people come to visit and check in on her tenants, she's got that piece of pie ready, that cup of coffee. She's here to serve you. But it's not just the snacks that she has to win them over. She does have this really uncanny ability to sort of disarm people. She just comes off as really, really genuine and even wholesome. But to her wards, it's a completely different story. She's a leech. As soon as they come under her roof, she would exert total control over them and all of their streams of income, however small they might be. If they had social security checks, she would finagle them for herself. So the Samaritans ended up being a short-lived operation, but it allowed her to establish herself as a do-gooder to Sacramento social workers. Yeah, and then her next move after that is to rent a 16-bedroom home, and this is her first foray into running a boarding house. She's not a licensed boarding house owner with the state, but, you know, what the uh, police don't know won't hurt her. She's already established this reputation with the social workers, that she has pie, that she's an angel, that she likes kittens. There's no question about whether or not she's licensed. And she told people that she's independently wealthy. So nobody looks askance at her financial situation or how she manages this boarding house. But unfortunately, her wealth was coming from the most vulnerable people in her care. 
So Dorothea was not a nurse, but as part of her scam, she does start going around town giving vitamin shots oh to my people. God. <laughs> I can't it sounds even dangerous. This part of the story, truly. And she she would to like pump up this image. She'd carry around with her a medical bag with a stethoscope in it. I feel like it's like my kids have this same one. It's like a Fisher Price bag, and I got to tell you, it's very convincing. It has a lot of paraphernalia in it, and. A Spanish-language newspaper even dubbed her La Doctora. And she, I just want to be very clear, she's not disputing any of this. She is using all of it to her benefit. And she uses her reputation to build political capital. She donates to Republicans, to Democrats. She attends fundraisers where her charity work earns her a chance to rub elbows with some of California's highest-ranking officials. She once danced with California Governor Jerry Brown. There are pictures with her with another governor, too, and she would claim that she knew many of them on a personal level. That feels like a euphemism. Maybe she just was, like, friendly, but, like, to be like, I know them on a personal level. Yeah, Dorothea, wow. Well, she'll tell you a lot of things. But uh, in 1978, (laughs) this scam totally crashes and burns when the Social Security Administration starts investigating her for forging checks. And guess what? It turns out all her charity work was actually being funded by her tenants' Social Security payments. Oh, my gosh. Quinn, I am so surprised. (laughs) So Dorothy is busted. She immediately pleads guilty to forgery, a strategy that she later uses to deny culpability. She later says that she only did so because it was easier than going through a lengthy trial. And though she pled guilty to a felony, she got off very easily. Just five years of probation. That's it. Yes. That's it. I mean, they shutter that boarding house that she had, but don't worry about Dorothea, folks. She's uh she's got other tricks up her sleeve. Her polka dot sleeve. In 1979, she meets a neighbor from across the street um, at a bar, and he lives with his wife and his two daughters in a house with a ton of rooms, more than they know what to do with. And after a long conversation with him, Dorothea convinces him to let her rent a room there. And eventually the family moves out, and they let Dorothea rent the whole house for herself. And this is the home where she begins her next scam. Because of her reputation as La Doctora, Dorothea actually begins pretending that she's a home care nurse. Among her patients was an 82-year-old woman named Irene Gregory. And Dorothea first spots Irene at a hair salon. And then like a creep follows her home. Right? She knocks on the door and she has these long manicured red nails and a flowery dress. And she's got her like Fisher Price medical bag. And she says, hi, I'm Betty Peterson. I'm sent by the Sacramento Medical Association to take care of you, Irene. And it's just really easy for Dorothea to see the name on Irene's prescriptions and pretend that she knows that doctor, that buys her more credibility, right? And she's like, you know what? I know that doctor, and I'm taking your blood pressure, Irene. I feel like you need other pills, and lucky for you, here they are, and gives her these pills. And like a good patient, Irene takes them. She has no reason to believe this person is here for the wrong reasons. So she takes the pills and it's only a matter of time until the pills knock Irene out. And Dorothea starts to raid her apartment of valuables and even takes a diamond ring off of Irene's finger. Like the audacity, the audacity to knock someone out and to go and take a ring off their finger. Well, and that's not the only time she pulls that exact shenanigan She replays that whole scene with another guy, and in his case, the drugs paralyze him so that he can't move, but he can watch her rob him, and she ransacks the apartment and takes a ring off his hand just like before, which is so creepy. As soon as Irene regains control over her body, she immediately calls the police and reports the incident, but there's not much to go on. Sure, but remember that she originally, 
Dorothea originally saw Irene at this hairdressing salon. And a few days later, Irene sees Dorothea at the hair parlor. She runs over to the hairdresser and is panicked. You have to call the police. Dorothea gets arrested later that day at her apartment. And once the police know who it is attached to the incident and they start to put all of the pieces together, it sounds really similar to three other cases. All of them octogenarians, all drugged by a fake nurse and robbed of their belongings. But it wasn't just theft. Dorothea actually fatally drugged her elderly roommate, her quote, friend, Ruth Monroe, before stealing all of her belongings. Now, her death is listed as a suicide because there wasn't enough evidence to prove that Dorothea had any involvement in killing her. But, I mean, the facts don't lie. In 1982, police charged Dorothea with forgery and administering stupefying drugs, which she pleads guilty to. So she earns herself five years in prison for her crimes. Though she would always claim that she only pled guilty to avoid a trial. Just to summarize, in 78, she gets caught for forgery, preying on her elderly tenants. She pled guilty. She got five years probation. Now here we are four years later, she's charged with forgery with the addition that she is now drugging people, pleads guilty again, gets five years again. This time they're five years in prison. What we're seeing is a pattern. What we're seeing is escalation. It's three years later, it's 1985, and she's out for good behavior. She's on parole, but it appears that nobody is really checking in on her, you know, making sure she's not back to her old tricks. So she rebuilds her boarding house scam. She even returns to the same house she left. Maybe she said she was traveling the world for three years because... She's still beloved by her landlord and the family that let her rent out that place. And she's still in the good graces of social workers who are just all too eager to pass off their toughest cases to her. You know, Dorothea the do-gooder. And once again, she begins cashing her tenants' social security checks to fund her lifestyle. As much as she wants her latest venture at 1426 F Street to look like she is finally on the straight and narrow, it's really just the latest in her long history of lies, theft, and now murder. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Detective Cabrera is sitting across from Dorothea Puente in the interrogation room, and this whole history that we've just spelled out for you is staring him right in the face. In the footage of the interrogation from the Center for Sacramento History, Cabrera doesn't play any games. He wants her to know that he sees her scam for exactly what it is. We're going to find out if, uh, about the checks. Okay, the mm-hmm. Social Security checks. Mm-hmm. And I know that your past, you know, you've been in right. some trouble with... Right. Okay. The similarities are there. The only, pro- the only thing that's different now is the fact, rather than take something and let it go, you get rid of them and nothing's ever found. 
as confident as Cabrera is that Dorothea's behind this gruesome plot he lays out, he doesn't actually have the evidence to hold her because the bones that they discovered are too old to be their missing man, Bert Montoya. And it wasn't wholly unusual for bones to turn up in a yard. I mean, in the early 1900s, you did bury your relatives at home if you couldn't afford a cemetery plot. But rather than let her off completely, Cabrera asks Dorothea to take a polygraph test, to which she immediately agrees to, but claims, you know, I'm just feeling a little tired today. It's been a long day in this interrogation room. I need a little lie down. So Cabrera actually has no choice but to let her go home to the scene of the crime. Right. But he he does ask her one more thing. Can they come by to do a little more digging? Uh, he does warn her, look, we might uh, we might have to uproot some of your new flowers. Again, she tells him, absolutely, come dig. I want to get it over with. So the next day, the sky is filled with these ominous rain clouds sort of threatening to turn this planned dig into a mud bath, which would really sort of actually be pretty fitting because it's about to become a total shit show, so it might as well look like one. <laughs> Magnum P.I., a.k.a. Cabrera, shows up at F Street, and he's wearing all blue. He's got blue jeans, blue T-shirt, navy sweater. I think he's in, like, his paint clothes, you know, when you know you're going to get messy. This is, like, his throwaway outfit. So he puts that on, and he's, you know, he's planning to get money. He's got these really ridiculous boots as well that are up to his calf, uh, pulled over his jeans. Also gearing up for this dig, there's a team of forensic examiners, crime scene investigators walking around in reflective coats around this yard. Everyone's getting ready. And they're not alone. Word has gotten out that a body was found. It was actually featured on the nightly news, so a crowd is there to watch. You know who doesn't want to stay? Dorothea. She comes out in this really great getup. She's got a pink dress. She's got this long red coat past her knees, purple metallic pumps on, and she's got a burgundy bag that's like full to bursting. And she walks out of the house and goes up to Detective Cabrera and says, can I just, can I take a moment? And pulls him aside and says, am I under arrest? And he has to be like, well, no. And he's kind of looking her up and down, realizing she looks she looks a little like she's ready to go out. This is not a watch a dig outfit necessarily. Dorothea says that all this police and the crowd, it just has her feeling really anxious. So um, she says that she'd really like to just step away, get a little cup of coffee at the Clarion Hotel, just down the street. Also, if you're feeling anxious, coffee is not going to help. Just a pro tip for me to you. So she plans on taking one of her tenants with her, this guy, John Connolly, and they're going to meet her nephew there. So she tells him it would just ease her anxiety if she could just go to the hotel for a little cup of coffee. Yeah, he's not super eager, obviously, to let her go uh, no. before they've excavated the yard. But after talking with his supervisor, he, he really doesn't have enough evidence to force her to stay. So he approves this request and he escorts her out through this wrought iron gate at the front of the property and walks with her a little ways with John Connolly. And halfway to the hotel, he stops and he watches her walk the rest of the way. I imagine like you would a kindergartner going to school for the first time. And because we know Dorothea is as good as her word, she walks into the Clarion Hotel and Detective Cabrera returns to the property and continues the dig. And it only takes 21 minutes. He remembers it to the exact minute for police to unearth a second body wrapped in cloth and duct tape, only a foot deep. Cabrera and his officers rush to the Clarion. They finally have enough to arrest Dorothea Puente. So when the police arrive at the Clarion Hotel Cafe to arrest Dorothea, she's gone. She's beat it. And Detective Cabrera, he just feels like a fool. He, he should have known better than to let her be on her own. Tom Selleck would never have let this happen. But, you know, I got to say to his credit, this is Dorothea's specialty. She puts folks at ease. She just puts everybody at ease. Her powers of persuasion are such that even when you suspect her of being a murderer, you don't consider that she'll be cunning enough to slip right through your fingers. 
The Sacramento PD puts out a wanted person bulletin to law enforcement, which is what we call a bolo. So now the FBI is getting involved because they suspect she could have fled to either Utah or Nevada or even Mexico. Yeah, and the police keep digging at the boarding house, right? They're still going. And they keep finding bodies. So the media goes berserk. They call it the nightmare on F Street. Ultimately, after the dig concludes, they find seven bodies in her yard. It's just like truly shocking. Among the bodies, sadly, is the man who sparked this investigation. They find the body of Bert Montoya. Meanwhile, Dorothea's tucked away in a motel 300 miles south of Sacramento. You know, she's seen the writing on the wall, and she has left 1426 F Street with $3,000 in her purse and headed straight to a bar, her happy place, where she's downed a few screwdrivers before taking the first bus to Los Angeles. And on her tiny little motel TV, she's watching the footage of body bags being rolled out of the gate of her boarding house. Her face is all over the nightly news. And maybe for the first time in this whole debacle, she's feeling, you know, I don't know. It it could be guilt. It could be fear. I can really only guess. But I know that she is feeling something because she later tells a reporter that at this moment, sitting there watching that TV, she wanted to kill herself. And she knows the jig is up, so she sits in her motel for days. She's afraid to go outside. I mean, people know what she looks like now. People are on the lookout for her. Um, But she doesn't want to risk being seen or reported to the police. And she cannot go back to jail. She didn't like it. She had notes, bad reviews all around. And her cabin fever, though, wins out because on the fourth day, Dorothea knows that she's at the end of her rope, and more than anything, you know what she needs to do? Get a screwdriver. She needs to get another (laughs) ding-ding-dong screwdriver. She doesn't deserve any buzzes where she's going, frankly. Yeah. But she does end up uh, following that vibe and going to a bar on the outskirts of L.A. called the Monte Carlo. Sounds like a classy place. classy. Um, So she gets her screwdriver, and then, you know, it's Dorothea, so she gets another. And you know what? Let's go ahead and have another. And she starts to feel a little looser, a little calmer. So much so, it's time to make a pal. And she strikes up a conversation with a man at the bar, a carpenter named Charles. So she introduces herself as Donna Johansson, which is yet another alias she has created for herself, which... By the way, what I love about this is she chooses aliases that she can remember because Johansson is actually the last name of one of her four ex-husbands. A lie, half a truth, that's how you get good at it. Um, And Charles likes her immediately. I mean, he's both attracted to her, but also a little wary of her at the same time. But she's certainly trying to woo him with her feminine wiles. I mean, she's a charming person. She has the gift of gab. She's really kind of letting loose after a couple screwdrivers. And she's telling him a sob story, too, about how her husband died recently and her luggage got stolen. So Charles is like, oh, let me help you. I can take those fabulous metallic purple pumps to the cobbler across the street and get them repaired. It's a chivalrous guy. So she buys him a beer for his trouble. And maybe it's the screwdrivers. Maybe it's Maybelline. But... Dorothea starts to come on a little strong, a little hard. I wouldn't wouldn't say it's Maybelline. I would say it's desperation and being on the lam. Yeah, the conversation is like, hey, good to meet you. And they're having a good time. And then she's like, should we have Thanksgiving together? You know what? Forget Thanksgiving. Should we move in together? (laughs) (laughs) And she's also asking him questions about his social security benefits. Well, Quinn, you haven't been on a first date in a while. I'm here to tell you, those are just like standard first date questions. (laughs) When do you reach full benefits? You know, things like that. Just fun little icebreakers. Get Um, to know ya. And frankly, while that tactic has not worked for me in the past, Charles is 
kind of into it, or I guess he's not totally not into it, right? So he's not going to move in with her so quickly, but they do set up a date so they can go shopping the next day. And when he returns home, thoughts of Donna Johansson start swimming in his brain and the smell of orange juice and vodka just really, you know, gets him off. So um, the burgundy purse, the Coke bottle glasses, the purple pumps, the red coat. He's into American Revolutionary cosplay, this one. So he's like excited for their next date, but he can't quite keep this feeling away that what he just knows her from somewhere you know yeah he's like where where is it where oh i can't place shoot. her was it the you american revolutionary war <laughs> no i know it. what it i know what it was i remember she was on the nightly news huh. she's dorothea puente the woman on the run from the fbi so Charles calls the local news station and tells them he's found her. And after corroborating his story, Charles and this local journalist call the police. Which sucks, because now, who is Charles going to have Thanksgiving with? I mean, I don't know that, but at least he'll be alive for Thanksgiving. Oh, I can't true. say the same if he was with Dorothea. Late that night, camera crews surround the Royal Viking Motel where Dorothea is staying. The police converge around room 31. They knock on the door and command Dorothea to come out. She immediately submits. She doesn't want to cause a scene, and she's still wearing her purple pumps and her bright red coat. Why do I think that's so funny? Well, you know what? I think I wonder if she knew she was going to get in trouble. So this was the outfit oh. that she wanted all the papers to capture her in. It's kind of smart. She's like, I'm going to get arrested. What's the look that I want in all the papers? Because she kind of dressed up. But it feels like a very similar question to like, what's your last meal? It's like, what's your on the lamb outfit? What's your last Luke? What's your last Luke? Totally. <laughs> that's absolutely what it is. But so... She immediately acquiesces. The police, the reporters are all around there. So all this stuff is on TV. And back in Sacramento, we have Detective Cabrera, who's watching TV, and he sees that the LAPD have apprehended her. And he immediately catches a plane to LA the next day because they finally got her. Local news station KCRA allows Cabrera to charter their private news plane to fly Dorothea back to Sacramento. Because news stations are known for being very mm. altruistic. That's totally. why. No, that's not why. JK, they wanted to do tradesies for an interview. So Cabrera and Dorothea sit side by side in the back of the jet as the news crew tries to ask her questions. But all they can get out of her is a few words. I have not killed anyone. The checks I cashed, yes. I used to be a very good person at one time. It would be four years before Dorothea's case goes to trial. And Quinn, remind me, isn't there like, um, I don't know, like a law, a right of a speedy trial? Speedy trial, yeah. Yeah, not I've, here. I've heard of that. No. <laughs> not here, no. It's 1992, and the trial is going to be long and grueling. Dorothea is accused of nine counts of murder, seven for the bodies of her tenants found in her yard, and I want to list them all because they all deserve to be named. Their names are Leona Carpenter, Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, James Gallup, Vera Faye Martin, Betty Palmer, and Alvaro Burt Montoya. The two other counts are who she allegedly killed earlier include her roommate, Ruth Monroe, who we mentioned earlier, um, and a man called Everson Gilmouth, whom she corresponded with while she was in prison that first time in 1982. Dorothea sits in court looking frail and harmless, totally the opposite of what you would expect a hardened killer to look like. A serial I, killer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I remember, though, that I read an account that said she looked like she was watching a movie that she wasn't particularly interested in. Yeah, like her face was sunken in and she just looks bored. Ugh. That's just so insulting. It's so insulting. 
But then the prosecution has this really hard task of trying to explain how a woman of her size and her age could have killed, moved, and buried all these people. They have no witnesses to the murders. They have no witnesses to the burials. There's no definitive causes of death for many of these victims. But what they do have is motive. Prosecutors claim that Dorothea took in $87,000 in assets and Social Security payments. And her defense team, they claim that the victims all died of natural causes. And while Dorothea did take their money, she was also afraid to report them to police because she was also violating her parole. It takes nearly six months of trial and 24 days of deliberation for the jury to finally come to a verdict, as reported by KCRA News. Verdict count five. We, the jury, in the above-entitled cause, find the defendant, Dorothea Montalvo Puente, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree of Dorothy Miller, as charged in count five of the information. Verdict count seven. So it took them a while. They were not, uh, this was not a speedy situation where everybody looked up and went. deliberation. That is insane. I wonder what they were asking to look at to reach their verdict. I mean, it's wild to me because it feels really cut and dry. Do you know? Do you know if there is a limit to deliberation, or will can it just take as long as it takes? I think you it know? can just like, take as long like, as it takes. Would they be like but a I, mistrial if it's too long? Well, in this particular case, I think it almost was because they had one sort of holdout juror who. Everyone else was like guilty. He was like, no. And then finally he acquiesced, but not all the way and said, let's convict her of three of the nine counts. I'm not sure specifically why he went with those three, but it doesn't really matter. That's all the prosecutors need to send her away for the rest of her life. Dorothea is sent to the Central California Women's Facility, where she shares a cell with seven other women. And every morning she gets up at 4.30 to start her day. I mean, she's well known in the prison, not for her crime, although people do know about it, but for her cooking. She makes tamales for her fellow inmates, and she likes cooking for people. You know, I guess some things don't change. But she still claims that she is completely innocent. Yeah, she doesn't talk to a lot of reporters, but in 2009, she granted her first interview in 20 years to journalist Martin Coos of Sacktown Magazine. And in it, she admits to stealing the Social Security checks, but she denies ever killing anyone. And when Martin asks what she misses about being free, she lists going to church, cooking, and doing work in her yard. Like, unironically, she mentions it. Completely. I mean, Dorothea, you are not watching the same movie we are. No. Um, The reporter asks her what it feels like to be known as a murderer, and she just dead stares him and says, I don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. Look, folks, we gave you some of the deets. If we were to cover Dorothea's life story, according to her... We would just need a whole other episode, maybe a couple, because it is bonkers. But I also know that after she was caught, a psychologist diagnosed her with antisocial personality disorder. And I will say that I am an expert on that affliction. No, I'm not. But I did Google it. And I can tell you that the ability to lie comes really naturally to someone with that disorder. And so when you take that into account, you then have to look at her stories about her life, and we should probably dismiss most of them, but I just would also be remiss if I didn't tell you that she says that she had four kids, two of whom were twins, that killed themselves a week apart from one another. She also, by the way, used to be a Rockette, and she got knocked off stage uh, by a fellow Rockette, and they both fell into the orchestra pit, and the other dancer was paralyzed. But Dorothea only broke her leg, but that did end her illustrious career. She also survived the 1942 Bataan Death March. I mean, look, here's the thing. I could go on and on. Did these things happen? Well, you guys decide. I, I guess the moral of the story is don't judge a book by its cover. 
And for that reason, I really, I need to highlight Judy, the you social guys remember worker. Judy from the Judy beginning. Judy Moyes from the beginning, the Sacramento social worker. She was the suspicious social worker who put this all into action. Because Judy cared enough for Bert, she didn't let him fall through the cracks and she didn't forget about him. Dorothea was stopped. And I really do believe that Dorothea would have just kept on killing people without right. being found out. And for that, Judy, we love you. For that, Judy, you, Judy, thank you. I think Judy saved countless lives. And I'm just so sickened by what Dorothea did to these people and that she claimed innocence for the rest of her life. Like to add insult to injury, to have no accountability. But the only thing I'm comforted by is that there was some justice served, that she lived the rest of her life in jail and she ended up dying in 2011 while in prison. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among them is an article from Sacktown Magazine titled The Life and Deaths of Dorothea Puente by Martin Coos. And the Netflix docuseries Worst Roommate Ever. We highly recommend you check out these sources if you'd like to learn more. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.